reading out of Mark. Um, one Sabbath he was going through the, the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he had those who were with him. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abithar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, it is, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. And he, took, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out immediately, held counsel with the Herodians against them, how to destroy him. Thanks, uh, thanks for coming out. I know that uh, fifth week you guys are getting super busy with class and stuff. Um, I'm glad you all are here. Uh, can I pray for us real quick before we look at this? Um, anytime we start talking about the Pharisees, I get nervous. Because I'm uh, a recovering Pharisee. Lord Jesus, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you that um, that it, it hits us right where we need it to. And it speaks truth uh, to wherever we are. And uh, certainly in a room of this size, uh, we're in a lot of different places. And so we pray that you would, by your spirit, meet us. You would uh, come right into our hearts and open them up that we may receive the words of life uh, from you tonight, Jesus. We pray uh, and ask all these things in, in your name. Amen. Uh, if, if you haven't been to RUF yet this semester, uh, we are taking a look actually all year long, if we can hang with it, at the Gospel of Mark. And the reason that we're doing that is... Um, I want us to get a picture and and a view of the life and ministry of Jesus from beginning to end, from his uh, the first days that he was uh, in the world uh, living and teaching and uh, making people mad, all the way to the very end when that anger was carried out fully and then to the resurrection and then what happens after that. And I think it's important that we do that because um, sometimes in, in Christian circles or in churches and such, um, and I've even done it here. It's just hard to see that in its fullness. And we can take little snapshots of Jesus' life or maybe catch things that he said or talk about his teachings. But sometimes it is good to slow down a little bit and look at the whole thing. And so we're going to try and do that this semester and, uh, and next. Um, <clears throat> how many of you guys have been keeping up with the NFL drama surrounding uh, Ray Rice and domestic violence and, and abuse against women and all this stuff? Some of you, um, I'm a huge uh, sports fan, not much of an athlete, but I love to watch sports. And I have been watching this stuff unfold over the last six or seven months, Um, and particularly in the last month or so, uh, with horror. I mean, it's awful at what's going on, and you see the videos of him uh, supposedly uh, knocking his... 
at that time fiance and now wife out in an elevator and then dragging her off the elevator. It, it's just awful. Um, and it, there's this ongoing legal battle of, you know, what exactly happened. Obviously, that's important. And then the NFL maybe tried to cover it up, and that's awful. And then the Ravens are now coming out and saying, no, that was a bad report, all this stuff. And so there's kind of the whole sadness and, and, and terribleness of the issue that's over here. But there's one weird part to it that's over here. So sadness, now weird and kind of funny. Um, if you will watch, and if, if you've paid attention to it at all, the video that was released of Ray Rice uh, on this elevator at the Revel Casino in Atlantic City, it wasn't leaked by like a, a court. It wasn't uh, put out by the NFL or anybody official, really. It came out by TMZ. <laughs> um, and so it's just weird that like a celebrity gossip site, you know, is, is the, the one putting out this awful thing. Usually they're into much more scandalous and, and kind of lighthearted and, and funny things. Um, but TMZ is the one that, that released this video. I was playing golf with a friend this summer who himself actually plays uh, for the Buffalo Bills in the NFL. And he was telling me about um, his trip to, to Hawaii this past January, February for the Pro Bowl. He's really good. He's made the Pro Bowl full t four times. And he talked about he was playing golf down in Hawaii with Jerry Rice. Uh, Jerry Rice is one of the best, if not the best, uh, National Football League wide receiver in history, super famous, all this stuff. And so they were playing golf, and they get to the 18th hole, the last hole on this golf course, and they could see from the tee box down at the green, they could see the media gathering. Not for him so much as for Jerry Rice, because he was the most famous guy on the course that day. And what they did is they devised this cleverly, uh, this clever strategic plan for like to, to do a diversion this way while Jerry Rice actually ran that way across the parking lot to his hotel. And then he sent someone later to get his car from the golf course because he didn't want to deal with the number of interviews and just the mass uh, exposure to the media and all that that would look like. You know, and I think when we take a look at, at people who are famous or people who are in the spotlight, there are things about that that, man, we would love to be a part of that. But that part about always being in the public eye is not enticing at all. In fact, it's awful to think that every one of your actions and motives is going to be criticized. And if you do something embarrassing, there's going to be someone there to take a picture of it. Or if your clothing is in a weird position, like it's going to be online. That, that sort of uh, life under a microscope thing um, really is nothing that any of us would desire at all. And I think when we look at this passage, and, and this passage tonight is really our first interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees. And when you see the Pharisees and kind of how they come onto the scene and what they do and the things that they say, uh, you're tempted to think, just like I am, that the Pharisees are some kind of official, uh, you know, the equivalent of the media. They are the official temple police, and they are out there trying to catch people doing bad things. And they are out there, um, you know, just pulling behind every rock and tearing apart the bushes, looking for people who are disobeying the rules and the laws. And it's tempting to think they are something official, but they're not. The Pharisees, different from the scribes, which we've seen the last couple of weeks, the Pharisees were essentially a self-appointed political action committee that was not official to the temple 
They weren't official kind of priests or anything like that. They were this self-appointed group of people who went around and had tremendous influence with the common people because they did have a certain level of expertise in the Jewish law and the traditions and things like that. But they went around kind of as the self-described police of morality. And they would be there uh, to check people. Now, they wouldn't have been there for every common person, but here's the thing. By this point already, Jesus and his followers are anything but common. Jesus has been saying things that they thought uh, the scribes were saying was blasphemy. He claimed to be able to forgive sin. He was healing people. The Jesus show has started, and the Pharisees are right there waiting to catch him. And so it is right here. uh, They catch him in this act. And tonight what we're going to see is this on full display. We are going to see what happens when Jesus crosses paths with the religious people of his day. What happens? What happens when Jesus drives his dump truck through the china shop of the Pharisees' religion with all their delicate little rules and regulations? What happens? And for us, something that seems like this little religious squabble 2,000 years ago, I'm going to suggest is it at the heart of about 90% of what you struggle with in the Christian life. What you struggle with in thinking, how can I be right with God? How can I know that God is for me and not just waiting to catch me? How can I know that? And so we're going to look at this. Why did the religious people of Jesus' days hate him? The passage opens in verse 23 with Jesus and his disciples doing something seemingly very innocent and innocuous. If you want to look down and read, it says that they were walking through the grain fields and his disciples plucked some heads of grain. This would have roughly been the equivalent of, you know, you're walking along and you get under a pecan tree, you pick up pecans and you crack one and start eating it. That's what's going on. And if you didn't have much background of who the Pharisees were or to the the rules and regulations of the Bible or anything, and you just read this one verse, you would be thinking this was background information, this was filler, this was the setup for for the punchline that was coming. But actually, this is the whole thing right here. Because if you look, starting in verse 24, what follows is this huge interruption and fight almost between Jesus and the Pharisees. What happened? Here's what happened. In the law of God, in the Old Testament Jewish scriptures, God had commanded his people that one day out of seven, they were to rest from all of their normal working, all of their normal, uh, their normal labors and everything like that, and they were to have a day of rest, the Sabbath. And what happened to this good law from God through the years, it was a law meant to give restoration and and a time to rest and be restored and to, to be healed. What happened to this down through the years, the thousands of years that followed, is that teachers and and I'm sure well meaning people sought to clarify this question. Well, what does it mean to work? What exactly is work? And then off of that, what does it mean to actually break that? And to, to rest from that. Or, or, you know, how do we do this? And how do we do it right? And how do we do it well? And by the time that Jesus came onto the scene in the first century, around that fourth commandment that you shall honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy, 
the scribes and the, I'm sorry, the rabbis and the teachers of the day had added 39 sub-rules to that law. These 39 sub-rules functioned like concentric fences around the home base. The home base was the fourth commandment, thou shalt honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. The 39 rules functioned as these these fences that keep people outside of ever actually breaking the real law. Okay, and so on one hand you can understand that the teachers thought they were doing something good. They thought they were protecting people from actually doing the one thing God said not to do. But by the time Jesus is here, and I think it would be fair to say for a century at least before that, if you do look into academia and and research on this, that these laws had produced something totally unintended. They had produced this pharisaical religious system of being right with God by keeping all of these laws to a T. They had created a system of religion that offered you a right standing with God based on following the laws. And that is not what God intended when He gave the law at at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments. That is not what God intended. And so, look, it's it's easy to look at the Pharisees and, and, you know, most pastors will kind of tee them up on the tee ball and just hit it out of the park and be like, those Pharisees, they are idiots, man. And it's just easy to pick on them because Jesus comes in so strongly against them. But before we just do that, let's consider that you and I are not all that different from them. That we love to have rules that we can follow. How many of you guys are box checkers? That you have your to-do list and you have a little box out to the side so that systematically as you are productive that day, you can check boxes and look and say, oh, I guess I am all right. Right? Or on those days when it doesn't happen, you uh, wallow around in guilt and shame and all that. But, um, you know, it feels good to follow rules. Martin Luther said that the default religion of the human heart is, is, um, is legalism. That we love to have things that we can look at and say, I did that. So when I was in college, uh, I serial dated. I always had a girlfriend because I was insecure. It's a whole different topic. But um, always was dating a girl. And um, I would have conversations like this with my campus minister. Hey, like, how far can we actually go before it's, you know, too far? Like, how physical can we be before uh, God might be mad at me for doing that? Or to put it very crassly, how immoral can I be with this girl before it's sinful? And I would want him to tell me, like, okay, so if it's dark, you can only do this, but if it's light, you can do that, or if you're in public, you can do it, right? And we create this whole maze of things. It's the exact same thing you guys do, because uh, you ask me about it. Um, you create this whole maze of do's and don'ts because we all want to, at the end of the day, look down and say, I did that. Or, if you didn't, you have something to look at and say, I'm a failure. I didn't do that. I should have, I didn't, so now I feel awful. Or uh, you guys do it with homework. You have this whole system of, of laws, unofficial laws and rules that you've created to what actually constitutes as cheating, right? Um, right. The very base, like, awful kind of cheating is if you just totally forget or maybe you've been irresponsible the night before and you wake up and you're like, oh, crap, we had that homework set, dude, and you just are plagiarizing someone else's stuff, even if they gave it to you. Okay, 
Everyone would kind of agree, yes, that's cheating. But what about that kind of cheating where um, you actually worked on it really hard for like three hours and you just couldn't figure it out, but you still did that at the end? But somehow in that system, in that process, you've justified yourself because you tried for three hours. We want someone and we want some way to look and, and kind of justify ourselves and say, I'm either good or I'm not. And rules, quite frankly, provide that very simply for us. They give us something to look at and say, I did this or I didn't do that. Give me a line to cross or not to cross so that I can know if I'm good or if I need to feel guilty and do this little thing, this dance with God and ask Him uh, to maybe help me or feel bad enough so maybe He'll feel sorry for me or whatever it is. We love rules. And when we put a religious spin on it, the rules look like this. Um, I want to know that I am doing what, what God requires of me. Because I want to know that when I'm doing that, then God is obligated to do things for me. He's obligated to kind of make my life work out fine. Or He's obligated to bless me, whatever that means. And I know also that if I mess up, again, I feel guilty and bad, and, and then I get God to feel sorry for me. I want to know how I stand with Him, and so I want rules is the bottom line. And that's exactly what the Pharisees had done. There were 39 additional rules on this one commandment. There were 10 commandments and a whole host of other ones. Um, paralyzing. Exactly. So why does Jesus get so angry at them, as it says right there in chapter 3, verse 5? Why does he look at them and get angry? Here's why. God had created this one day as a day where people were required, yes, were required to stop working, but it was so that they could be refreshed and so that they could enjoy other things in life, so that they could enjoy their family, so that they could go and worship and not uh, be griped at by your boss, so that they could... Um, be restored. All of these things, God created this thing as a gift to give them. And this religious system had been laid over the top of it and it had made this, day, this gift into an obligation. And Jesus comes in and he is angry. And y'all, when we create this matrix in our lives of things that we think we can do to make God like us, or things we think we need to stay away from so that God won't be mad at us, when we create this matrix of boxes that we can check before Him, we have to hear Jesus coming at us and saying, that's not how I designed you to live. I don't want you to feel like you can justify yourself before me based on what you do or don't do. And Jesus is angry at them. Imagine that uh, you've graduated from college and you go out and buy a house. It's kind of a fixer-upper because you can't really afford a nice house. But you go buy a house, a nice cute one right over here uh, in Florence Park, just south of TU. And uh, one of the things that you know has to be done at the house is it needs painting on the outside. It's got some spots that have been uh, kind of worn out to the wood and paint is flaking off in other places. Uh, but you don't know how to paint. You don't have time to paint because you have a job, right? You have a job. You're going to get a job. Um, <laughs> keep telling yourself this on the count of three. I will have a job. Um, but you call a painter and you say, look, I need someone to come and paint the outside of my house. Uh, he talks to you. You kind of do the, make the negotiations. 
and you say, look, I'm going to be out of town for the next three days. Could you come and do it then? He says, great. And he shows up at your house while you're in Houston. And you show up, and, and he starts painting. You show up on Friday, and you pull in from the airport up to your house, and it is a disaster. It's a disaster. It's all, the paint is all stripped away. There's just paint chips and stuff all over the ground. And you are angry. And so the first thing you do is you get your phone and you say, what are you doing? This looks awful. And where are you? Why aren't you here doing something? And the painter says to you, look, I am a professional painter. I know what I'm doing. For years and years and years, people have been adding layers of paint to this house, thinking that it's going to touch at what is wrong with the paint job. But year after year after year, because they never go to the source of it, they never go to the heart of it, they're just laying new coats onto a problem, and it is bound to wear down. And so if you want me to do what is necessary to be done, I have to come and strip away all of the paint and go down to the wood and begin by conditioning the wood. And then we will add the primer. And then I will come back and put the right coats of paint on there. But you have to trust me. I'm a painter. I know what I'm doing. Jesus is coming to the Pharisees and he is saying, you have no idea what you've done. You keep adding layer upon layer to these laws so that because you think it's what needs to be done, you think this is what's going to make your life pretty and it's going to, what's going to make your life work. You think it's going to look good. And Jesus is coming to them and to us and saying, no. We have to strip away all of that stuff and we have to get to the heart of what I was after in that command. You see, Jesus is never as much about your actions as he is about your heart. Because Scripture says the heart is the wellspring of life. From your heart will flow your actions. Religion is primarily concerned with controlling the external. It is primarily concerned with giving you a list of do's and don'ts. It is an action-based form of religion, of relating to God. And it goes like this, if I perform and if I obey, then I'm accepted. If I perform this certain way or obey well enough, then I'm accepted by God. And Jesus comes in with the gospel of grace and says, absolutely not. Absolutely not. That is not how this works at all. He says, God could never be satisfied with you based on your obedience or performance because you will never obey or perform well enough. So stop trying. You here tonight, stop trying. Stop trying to relate to God and present Him with your resume of good things you've done and bad things that you haven't done. And begin to relate to him through the gospel, which says you can be accepted by God based on what Jesus has done for you. And then once that reality lands in your heart and you begin to relate uh, to God in that way, then you will begin to obey out of a heart that is grateful for something that has been done for you. 
then your actions will rightly follow from a changed heart. Jesus is about your heart, not just your actions. And the Pharisees were all about their actions. So much so, in fact, that in Matthew, at the end of Matthew's account of the gospel, Jesus looks at them and he calls them whitewashed tombs. He's saying, look, on the outside, you look totally clean. I'll I'll grant you that. Your life looks so good, but you are dead. And if that's you tonight, if you are relating to God based on your performance and obedience, or if you are terrified of God based on your lack of performance or your disobedience, I'm inviting you out of both of those things to Jesus and to rest in His performance and obedience for you on your behalf. Jesus came to end religion. And to end the idea that someone could relate to God based on those terms. And he came, secondly tonight, to inaugurate rest for his people. He came to inaugurate rest. Because you see, the trickle-down of these two streams is this. On this hand, when you have uh, this basis of relating to God based on what you do, it is a tireless, a tireless, limitless list of things you have to do. And so you will be anxious because there is more you can always be doing. Or you will be depressed because you know you're not doing the more that you can always be doing. Some of you tonight are anxious and depressed because of this very thing. When you have made your relationship with God about you and your performance, it has to lead to some sort of dissatisfaction because you will screw up. Big. And Jesus is inviting you off of that. He is saying, get off of that performance treadmill that has no stop button and step into, step into me. And I will give you rest for your soul. Stop trying to perform for God. It will not work. He will not have you that way. It doesn't make sense. In the gospel, Jesus offers you freedom from you. That may sound crazy, but here's what I'm saying. You know how all of us, all of us are just preoccupied with ourselves, with how we look, with how we sound, with our jokes being funny or not, with what we wear, with how we perform in school, with what others think about us all day long, with what we look in the mirror. This is a weird confession. I can't stop looking at myself in a mirror. <laughs> if there's a mirror in the building across the way, I am, it's like a magnet I'm drawn to. I just have to look at myself. It's weird, and that probably makes me narcissistic. I don't know, but I can't stop. Jesus, help me. <laughs> like, we do that, though. We're always just thinking about ourselves, and Jesus is saying, the more the message of the gospel gets deep into your heart, you begin to be freed from this self-consumption. And you begin to be able to spend those time and that energy on other people and on things that actually benefit you. He's offering you rest away from you. And that means that on your worst day, God loves you as much as He does on your best day. And some of you really need to hear that. Like, really, really actually need to hear that. Because you've had some bad days already this semester. 
you've done some things, you've said some things, you've you've thought some things, you drank that much, you went that far with that guy or girl, you did that on an assignment, you said that lie to your parents. Some of you have had some bad days. And in the gospel, when your identity is in what Jesus has done for you already, then on that terrible day, your worst day, God looks at you and says, I love you so much. I couldn't love you any more than I already do. And yes, He calls us away from that stuff because He knows it's not good for us. But positionally, we are fixed in Christ's love. He loves you as much on your worst day as He does your best day because in the end, it's not about you. And that is good news. You will find rest for your soul when, that, when you find that to be true about you. But you know, the gospel makes a lot of enemies. People hate it. If you look down and read uh, right there at the end of chapter 3, not the end, at the end of that passage we have, it says, and when Jesus said these things, everyone loved him. No, it doesn't say that. It says, and when Jesus said these things, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians how to, against him, how to destroy him. Okay, we get it. We've talked about why the Pharisees are mad. Jesus is bringing down their whole house of religious cars. He's saying that doesn't count for anything. It's totally bogus. But who are the Herodians? Who are the Herodians? Very interesting and very important. One scholar says this. The Herodians were the supporters of King Herod, who was himself the the vilest and most corrupt of all of the corrupt Roman-appointed kings who ruled over Israel. And wherever the Romans went and conquered, they brought along the culture of Greece, Greek philosophy, Greek attitudes towards sex and the body, Greek approaches to truth. And he goes on to say that conquered societies like Israel here felt assaulted by these immoral, cosmopolitan, pagan values. And in these conquered countries, there were cultural resistance movements that that pressed back against the, the Greek culture and the Herodians. And in the Israelite culture, that cultural resistance movement was the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the Herodians' biggest opponents. The Pharisees were your traditional conservative people trying to build a huge fence to say, you cannot come over and wreck our conservative traditional values. And the Herodians were the liberal progressives coming in and saying, you guys need to get caught up to speed. Don't you know the world is changing? And we look right here in this passage, and those two groups are coming together because they want to destroy Jesus. What in the world would unite these two opposing groups to destroy this man named Jesus? Why was he so offensive? It is this, that the gospel of grace that Jesus is offering, that idea that you can be right with God based on, your, based on something totally outside of you, it undercuts both religion and rebellion, the, the irreligious response. Because in religion you have this conservative thing I mentioned. That it's just like, no, we have to be good and we have to be moral and we have to do the right things. 
And in irreligion, you have this response that says, no, you can decide for, what, uh, for yourself what truth is. And it's all about self-discovery anyway, right? We hear these things. It's the same in our culture. And Jesus is saying, no. Both of those are going to leave you enslaved. Both of those will leave you in bondage. I am coming to offer you something totally different. It's a third option. It's an invitation to a way of life whereas, uh, in where your meaning and your value is determined on something that has been done for you, not on you. It is totally different and it's totally freeing. And as history would continue to unfold, the seeds of this plot that were planted that day between the Pharisees and the Herodians trickled down and grew up into full fruition when Jesus is falsely accused, by catch this, by a Roman government as he is pushed through the system by a Jewish people. The Pharisees were there pushing him through the Roman courts, and again they conspired at the end of his life to kill him. What Jesus did was so offensive that they had to get rid of them, of him. And how does Jesus respond to them? How does Jesus respond to us in our love for treating Him, for treating God as someone to relate to based on our performance? How does Jesus respond to us, those who have sinned against Him by refusing to live for Him and find our identity in Him? He responds on the cross like this, looking out at His enemies, those who put Him on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they've done. And for all of us in the room tonight, we bring all of our failings before Him, all of our rebellion against God, all of our rebellion against Jesus and His teachings, and our primary rebellion of wanting to live the way that we want to live for ourselves. We bring all of that to the cross, and Jesus looks at us and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know that they're crucifying the Lord of life. They don't know that they're they're crucifying the Lord of the Sabbath, the one who wants them to have rest in their souls. They just don't know. But you can know tonight that His offer of forgiveness is for you. And His love extends to you right now in this room, just as it did for His enemies from the cross. Will you take it? We're going to do something a little awkward and odd tonight. I'm going to stop, and we're going to have about 60 seconds of silence. And in that time, I want you to seriously consider how it is that you relate to God. Some of you are are not familiar with Christianity. You're in from the outside. And so um, I don't want to dictate for you what that looks like. But for those of you who have grown up around religious circles and have been used to this for a while, I want you to ask yourself the hard question. Am I actually secure and resting in what Jesus did for me? Or do I functionally think I have to please God and kind of earn my way back into his favor. So ask yourself that honestly, and then respond to God by praying, uh, perhaps quietly in, in your chair there for a minute. And I'll close this after um, one minute. Let's pray.
Jesus, you said that no one comes to the Father except through you. And I pray for all present tonight that we would find that door to you wide open. And we would see your loving offer of the gospel of grace on the other side. And that we would walk in and receive rest for our souls. We pray all these things in your sweet name. Amen.